Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under Ear Fuel and at getearfuel.com. Today, 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 we're going to discuss what exactly shock rock is. Not chakra. We're not talking about your chakras. We're talking about shock rock and whether or not it actually even exists anymore. Because the other day, someone made the statement that it doesn't. And uh, we're going to dig into that. But before we do dig into that, a very quick look at a brand new album. The record I want to look at today is called Fishing Blues, and it's the latest release from Atmosphere. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with Atmosphere, they are a Minneapolis-based hip-hop duo that have been doing things since, I want to say the late 80s, I think they started, and they happen to also be the founders and co-owners of Rhymesayers Entertainment. You need to know that label. They are so damn good. This new record is their first since 2014's Southsiders, and that was an album I wasn't too huge on because I felt they were a bit lost musically, and I was hoping that this record would be a return to form. And oh man, is it ever a return to form. This might be the best album they've done in, I don't know, 10 years or so, ever since the When Life Gives You Lemons, You Paint That Shit Gold album. And while this record does have its blemishes, there's a whole lot to love here. Ant is in top form here as his production is as good as ever. The beats and the sounds he drops on every song are spectacular. And in an era of bland predictability within hip-hop, this is both a breath of fresh air as well as a reminder of how damn good the music in hip-hop music can be. There are these deep, deep grooves, head-knocking beats, and smooth, chilled-out moments as well. And they all work so well together, which is a trick that most producers fail to accomplish. It's balance and diversity that helps this record to just soar, and Ant is unquestionably on top of his game from beginning to end. The other half of the group is the rhyming from Slug, and he sounds, you know, honestly, he sounds more comfortable than he has in a really long time. The words just flow naturally, nothing is forced, and there's this sharpness and cohesion that I really felt was missing from him for the last few records. Whether he's getting brilliantly personal on a track like Everything, or taking the complete opposite perspective on Pure Evil, Slug understands and he is fine with who he is and where he is in life, and the lyrics bring that power and deep thought with them. I will say though, there are moments where he gets a bit too personal, like on the song Next to You, but, well, you know, like I said, this record is not perfect. I really dig the wordplay on the song Ringo, and the deep references he makes to other bands on the opening track, and, well... MF Doom makes an appearance on the track when the lights go out. And it's MF Doom, so that's worth listening to wherever he is, because it's MF Doom. If you don't know MF Doom, we'll get to that eventually, but you need to know that name. MF Doom. But this is an atmosphere record. MF Doom is just on it. All in all, this is an extremely strong addition to what's already a must-know catalog from Atmosphere, and it gives really good signs of things to come. So, whether you know them or not, this is some of the finest non-mainstream hip-hop around right now, and it's more than worth a few spins. Go check it out. Moving on. Today, I want to discuss a comment made by Alice Cooper, a man who always has a solid viewpoint on the world of music, and who certainly has more than paid his dues to become true rock royalty. The other week, he was speaking to an Australian newspaper, and he said, quote, I don't honestly believe that a rock band can shock an audience anymore. With ISIS, people shooting cops, etc., now CNN is more shocking than Rob Zombie or Marilyn Manson or Alice Cooper. 
He later says that it was easier to shock audiences back in the day due to a more wholesome culture and that he sort of blames the internet for making it impossible to shock anyone anymore. So there's a lot to unpack in what he had to say, but it also lends itself to a journey through the past to see what was considered shocking at different times and whether or not the internet and our current society is really to blame. Oh, and I'm also going to dig into the idea of whether rock music's job is to shock audiences at all, or if Cooper's just lamenting the end of a certain type of stage theatrics. But before we can discuss where we are, let's discuss how we got here. Actually, you know what? Before that, let's take a moment to discuss the term Alice is alluding to, shock rock. This is basically an umbrella term that covers artists who live on that border of rock and metal, and the bigger marker of it is that they tend to have very elaborate and provocative stage shows. Face paint, huge pyro, fake blood, heavy on the horror, and things like that. This can cover bands ranging from Kiss to The Misfits, from Gigi Allen to Ozzy, from Rammstein to Guar, and loads of other bands. Most people believe that this style of music and performance started at the end of the 60s and beginning of the 70s when you found people like Alice Cooper. But it actually dates all the way back to about 1956 with the great Screamin' Jay Hawkins and his iconic song, I Put a Spell on You. The track is raw and wild, and it's almost feral at times. And at his live shows, he'd emerge from a coffin and sing into a skull-shaped microphone. I know that might sound cliche now, but this is 1956. We're talking the beginning of Elvis years, and this guy's already coming out of a coffin. There were often smoke bombs and other random effects during his performance. And if you want to get a very small glimpse of the man, there's a really good recording of him performing on Saturday Night Live, and you should definitely check it out. So, yeah. The mid-50s are where we see the emergence of the shock rock style of performance, but it was really an underground thing. Seriously, I mean, again, the conservative society of the time was barely able to deal with Elvis's hips shaking on television, so the wild style of Screamin' Jay Hawkins and others was mind-blowing. So you have that in 1956, but it really actually is the late 60s where things start to build, as rock was firmly in the mainstream and many bands were looking for other ways to express themselves. A lot of people will argue that The Who and their incessant instrument smashing qualifies as shock rock, but I'm more apt to point to Arthur Brown as the next key figure in this movement. If you don't know Arthur Brown, chances are you've heard his most iconic moments sampled. You know, it kind of sounds like this. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you... Yeah, Arthur Brown. The guy had an incredibly theatrical stage show, donning a flaming helmet or voodoo makeup and a cape, and along with that, he was super heavy on the psychedelic, and he was actually once deported from Italy for getting naked on stage during a show. Oh, and the makeup he wore? Yeah, that's where both Alice Cooper and Kiss got their inspiration, and the combined chaos of his performances pushed Jimi Hendrix to kick him off tour as an opening act. Just a few dates in, Hendrix had to pull the plug on this wild opener. I mean, we're talking about someone who lit themselves on fire on stage on a regular basis. Really. So after Arthur Brown, we get to the beginning of the 70s, and that's where the master of shock rock himself emerges, Alice Cooper. While there are a few others before him, as far as I'm concerned, it was Alice who took things to a massive scale, as along with his wild, almost vaudevillian stage shows, he had an absolutely fantastic band. The trio of 1971 and 72 releases, Love It to Death, Killer, and School's Out, are about as powerful a three consecutive albums as you're going to find anywhere and they really really hold up well all these decades later we'll get to that later because you got to check these albums out but the stage show of alice cooper oh the stage show of alice cooper 
Whether he was being beheaded by a guillotine, put to death in an electric chair, hanging from the gallows, or so many other violent acts, it was the theatrics of Cooper and his band that pushed them into a musical universe all their own. The makeup, snakes and spiders, dolls with their heads cracked open, you name it. It was a horror show on stage with a blistering rock soundtrack, and that's why Alice Cooper is seen as the true king of shock rock, and their 1973 tour shattered box office sales records everywhere. And it also led them to being banned from a number of cities because of their stage show. But see, that's where things started to change. As the 1980s got going, you see a change to much darker, more confrontational performers in the world of shock rock, most notably the band Wasp and the one and only Gigi Allen. The former would often throw raw meat at the crowd or have a naked woman tied to medieval racks on stage. I mean, their debut album is called Animal, and in parentheses, fuck like a beast. And they were one of the favorite targets of the amazing Parents Music Resource Group. They're the ones who put the parental advisory explicit lyric stickers on everything. Oh, did they love to hate Wasp. On the other side, you have Gigi Allen, the man often called the most spectacular degenerate in rock and roll history. Whether he was self-mutilating, eating or covering himself in feces, or just destroying venues, you went to his show to kind of survive the experience more than to actually hear the music. It even got to the point where he said he was going to take his own life on stage during one of his shows, and his final performance ended when the venue cut the power after just two songs. So he trashed the place. And then he walked to a friend's place completely naked, and he died later that evening of a heroin overdose. Gigi Allen is almost a folklorish character, and we're definitely going to learn more about him down the line because he's a fascinating part of music history. Now, the 90s brought shock rock in the form of the band The Mentors, who might be the one band in history that I have zero respect for. Zero. I'm not going to even talk about them. But you also get two massive shock rock acts that remain to this day, Rammstein and Marilyn Manson. Some people prefer to write Rammstein off as silly because of their stage shows, but that's actually part of their brilliance. They get that they're a bit gimmicky, but they completely own it and blow it up to amazing proportions. They shoot fire arrows from a crossbow, they set fake stage crashers on fire, and of course from time to time they bust out their obviously phallic-shaped pink cannon that shoots massive streams of white foam all over the crowd. These guys get it, and on top of it, they're also a heck of a band. But few people will argue against the idea of Marilyn Manson being the face of shock rock for the better part of the past two decades. He and his band have dabbled in transgenderism, implied Nazi mindsets, and pushed pretty much every boundary one can think of. Both in sound and appearance, the band were the pinnacle of everything conservatives hated in the 90s and early aughts, and Manson struck back with fantastic commentary in society both in his songs and out. From the anti-everything imagery of the beautiful people, to his anti-lunchbox song, Lunchbox, one of my favorites, to the cover of his Mechanical Animals album, Manson has a wide range to the issues he feels need to be addressed in society. Manson said that he was trying to basically be the loudest, most persistent alarm clock because there didn't seem to be any other way to snap society out of its Christianity and media-induced coma. His words, not mine. Much like Ramstein, he certainly understands the way in which he provokes others. And once you hear him speak, his astuteness and understanding of the world is often the most shocking thing of all about Marilyn Manson. So yeah, you basically start at Screamin' Jay Hawkins and you end at Marilyn Manson. That is a super, super brief overview of Shock Rock in terms of who and how. We'll get into more of that later, but let's consider it now in comparison to rock music in general. 
I know people basically want to say that all shock rock is heavy metal or close to it, but that's just not the case. I mean, remember, there was a time when Elvis on television was as threatening as Marilyn Manson to parents, but I think we can all agree they're not the same type of shock rock. But I do think that's a good starting point. If we're saying that shock rock is simply a combination of music and visualizations that make people uncomfortable and involve a great deal of theatrics, well, I mean, then wouldn't we have to qualify someone like Lady Gaga into this group? How about the rapper Blowfly or so many other controversial performers that don't fit properly into the world of rock? If we roll things back to the 50s when rock music itself was shocking, you didn't need anything else, and then use the idea that by the time Alice Cooper arrives on the scene about 20 years later, it simply required his stage persona to get a similar reaction of fear and discomfort in the audience. And, you know, if we think about it that way, maybe the parallel to Elvis isn't that far off. And then if we fast forward another four decades, maybe Alice's comment on it being impossible to shock people is also on the mark thanks to how much culture as a whole has progressed. But you know what? Let's slow down for a second and get back to what, at its core, shock rock is. Some will argue that shock rock is just about pushing boundaries and making the audience uncomfortable. While I hear that and don't completely disagree with it, I don't think it's enough. By that broad a definition, Rage Against the Machine or even Against Me fit as shock rock. And I think we can again agree that that is not the case. So then it has to be the horror element that's the key to shock rock. Without that one aspect, it's just good old rock and roll, metal, or something in between. Or is it? I mean, if now we're saying to be shock rock, all we need is it to be heavy and have that horror business going on, well, then how do we explain a band like Typo Negative or Iron Maiden, who absolutely fit those standards, but are definitely not the same as unquestionable shock rock bands? So then what is this missing element? What is it? What is the special sauce that takes a heavy band with dark overtones and pushes them into the world of shock rock? Honestly, I think we have to treat this question about shock rock like the Supreme Court treats the question of porn. I can't define it in every case, but I absolutely know it when I see it. So, if we just take for granted that there's no real strict definition of shock rock, but when presented with it, there's no question of its belonging, we arrive back at the original question. Can a rock band shock an audience anymore? To spoil the tension, no. I don't think you really can anymore, but I don't think the internet is to blame. Well, I don't think the internet is to blame for all of it. You see, there are two separate issues going on here for me, as we have the idea of not being shocked versus the idea of kind of having something spoiled in advance. Working with the latter idea first, because, you know, backwards is fun, I do believe that the internet is responsible for ruining the magic and mystery of live performances. Really, with places like YouTube making it so easy to see horribly shot cell phone videos of every single concert tour out there, I mean, the anticipation and the excitement of the unexpected is completely ruined. Case in point, if something like YouTube existed back in the 70s, Alice Cooper's stage show wouldn't have gotten the draw that it did. Yeah. They were an absolutely amazing band, but people went to those concerts to see what the hype was all about and to be scared a bit. If you'd spent weeks watching the guillotine decapitation bit over and over and over again, it would take all the surprise out of the show. You'd hear them start the song in question, and then you'd probably nudge your friend and say, oh, here comes the guillotine part. Or maybe you'd watch it happen, and then you'd say to your buddy, yeah, that was okay, but the video I saw of when they did it in Cleveland was way better. Oh, also, I'm going to take this opportunity to remind you, please, for the love of all things holy, keep your damn phone in your pocket at shows. Nobody wants to see your crappy video with the audio blown out. Enjoy the show. 
<clears throat> Sorry about that. Where where was I? Uh, do do do. Alice Cooper getting his head cut off. Of course, having access to videos of the crazy things that go on stage is only half of the problem. The other, it's not so much the fault of YouTube as it is of culture in general. Study after study discusses how, as a society, we've become desensitized to horrific acts because of, well, mostly because of the news. Think about things in perspective. Can you imagine Marilyn Manson being interviewed on a TV show in the 50s or the 60s? People would have freaked out and, I don't know, written a lot of mean letters because that's what they did back then, right? I mean, it was kind of the old school equivalent of sending an I'm unfollowing you tweet to someone. Yeah, okay, we don't do letters anymore, but really. Things just aren't taboo anymore. It's been a slow progression over the past two or three decades, but for so many reasons, we're just not stopped in our tracks as easily. We can brush off scenes of death and then go get ice cream or see some overly sexualized performance alongside our teenage kids and think nothing of it. This is in no way me trying to condemn society for becoming so loose, but it plays a key role in Alice Cooper's assertion that audiences can't be shocked anymore, because I think he's right. Short of, I don't know, actually killing yourself or having your way with an animal on stage, I'm not really sure you would make people's jaws hit the ground or even make them uncomfortable. Maybe it would work once, but as soon as it got uploaded to YouTube, forget it. People are coming in with an expectation and they've already seen your big finale. So, to Mr. Cooper's question, is Shock Rock dead? Yeah, I kind of think it is. That's not to say Marilyn Manson and others can't play great shows with huge theatrics anymore, but now it's almost, I don't know, more campy or just theatrical as opposed to dark and dangerous. The edge is gone, and in many cases, it's cringeworthy to watch bands try and pull it off. Now, at the same time, rock itself, far from dead. The point of rock music has always been to rally against the status quo and upset the current generation of parents. I mean, we love that part about it. While there may not be as many bands proudly carrying the torch of rock and roll, they're out there for sure. And since there are always kids picking up a guitar for the first time, rock and roll itself will never die. Maybe at some point in the future, once we realize how overexposed we are as a society, things will circle back around to a point where shock rock can rise again. But until then, at least we've got a ton of killer records to crank up and enjoy from this unique corner of the rock universe. Now, before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days, music has become relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're at work, you're driving, you're whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of the music alone. This week, since he was the source of the conversation, your listening assignment is my favorite of the three consecutive must-own records from Alice Cooper, and it's the magnificent 1971 album, Love It to Death. Now, before I even get into the record itself, there are actually four different versions of the album cover, and one is extremely sought after. The initial pressing of this album was done on straight records, which was co-owned by Frank Zappa. And on that cover, Alice is sticking his thumb out through the zipper of his pants. Think about it for a second, you get the imagery. This is 1971. Once Warner Brothers got the rights to the album, it was cleverly airbrushed off. Now, I've heard they put it back in for repressing, so keep an eye out for that sneaky little thumb. Anyway, on to the music. What you have here is a band at their peak, and when they're locked in, honestly, you cannot hold a candle to them. They're that good. Much of the greatness on this record is actually due to producer Bob Ezrin. 
while he'd go on to get hugely famous and work with Pink Floyd, Lou Reed, Kiss, Aerosmith, so many other people, it was his ability to harness and focus the power of the Alice Cooper band that vaulted this album miles beyond what they'd previously achieved in the studio. There's no question that Love It to Death has one of the best side ones ever, anchored by the back-to-back of I'm 18 and Long Way to Go. These two songs give you both sides of the Cooper coin, as the hit single has that darker, evil tinge to it, while Long Way to Go is a high-octane rocker that you have to play louder and louder every time. It's one of those great forgotten tracks in rock history. The second side is pure, disturbing darkness, with some of the most chilling lyrics you'll ever find. And the music the band puts behind it, oh, it's so good. If you want to really understand what fueled the Alice Cooper stage show, the second side is really all you need. Along with that, this is absolutely a guitar rock album, which shouldn't be surprising coming out of Detroit in the early 70s. Glenn Buxton and Michael Bruce slay it on every song, and the solo during the song Second Coming, oh, it is extraordinary. But see, the rhythm section allows them to have a ton of diversity in style and pace, allowing moments like Black Juju to happen, and that's when you realize this band has no limits. However, at the end of the day, this is Alice Cooper's band, and he makes that very clear at every turn. It's the emotion and the persona he brings to every line that makes these songs come to life, and you can really feel his stage performance on every song. Seriously, you can almost imagine him on stage across this whole album, and few performers can make that come through the speakers like he does. Oh, and he's also able to balance evil, near-spoken word parts with full-on rock power, and that's why there is only one person worthy of the name Alice Cooper. Riffs, grooves, and a dark streak that you can't top. It's all there on Love It to Death, and if somehow you don't know every note of this album, you need to change that right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. I'm always on Twitter at, at the Daily Guru and at Get Earfuel, and the podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores along with at GetEarfuel.com. That is your weekly Earfuel. Share and enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs>